Mansell with HJ Sports, and today we're going to go over our new sites within the Tetra line for 2022. So new for 2022, we actually came out with a new way to mount your scope housing to the infinite adjust bracket. No longer do you have to worry about your vertical adjustments uh, intertwining with the second axis adjustments. So as you'll see on the scope housing, uh, there's actually an additional brick. You can either mount that to the inside of the riser or to the outside of the riser. We recommend that for most traditional bows, you mount that to the inside of the riser and for any sort of sight that you're gonna mount in line with the bow to use the outside. Just flip that around um, and mount it to the outside of the riser. So within each of the product categories, we have the Tetra Max, the Tetra, and then the Tetra LT. As always, our Tetra line of sights come in four different scope housing size options, an inch and three eighths, an inch and five eighths, an inch and three quarters, and then also our four pin housing, which is an inch and three quarters. We also offer a 10 thousandths pin and a 19 thousandths pin for both single pin and four pin options. On the Tetra itself, we once again have micro adjustments as well as your macro gain adjustments for left and right. For your vertical adjustments on your Tetra bow sight, you'll want to use the screw right here on the infinite adjust rail and the screw below that. You'll just loosen those and slide it up and down. Another key feature on the 2022 Tetra bow sight is the integrated scope ring that has a built-in level. Another key feature on the 2022 Tetra site is the ability to take a 2500 blue burst light. This is an added on accessory, but you can actually put that on there to add light to your pin or to reduce light. With that, we also have mechanical rheostat, which is an exclusive feature to HHA on the Tetra line. You'll be able to turn in the rheostat if you want to dim the light, and then you'll also be able to turn it out if you want to let more light in. Also on our 2022 Tetra line bow sights, the Tetra comes in either a fixed frame, our Hunter Edition frame, or it comes on a four to eight inch adjustable dovetail. All HHA products are 100% made and sourced in the USA, and they carry a 100% lifetime warranty. For any more questions, please visit our website at www.hjsports.com. Hello, we're at the BATA show at uh, Veteran Innovative Products, uh, an all-American made and manufactured broadhead. So we've got a new one for 2020 called the Combat Veteran 4-Blade. As you can see, 4-Blades got a lot of the same high-quality materials we used with our original 2-Blade Veteran, but the Combat Veteran has a different deployment system. How it deploys is you just squeeze a little bit on your main blades, okay, those compress, and then the broadhead opens. It still has our momentum management compressible blade technology. So the the cutting diameter is inch and a quarter by two inches on this when deployed. Uh, in flight, it's one inch by inch and a quarter. Another feature we added this year with these heads uh, is that you can exchange the bone breaching field point tip with a 125 grain setup if you would like. So swap the tip out, get you 125 grains instead of 100, which is big with those Western hunters. And then it's really simple to lock back in place, roll those blades up, and then it's a click and another click on the other side. It's completely set in, will not prematurely deploy, will not rattle free, solid containment, 100% deployment every time. So we've made a lot of good adjustments and refinements to it to make sure that it's guaranteed to deploy every single time. So that's what's new for VIP this year. 
Welcome back, guys. This podcast is brought to you by RPG Coffee Company, a veteran-owned and operated socially responsible coffee company born to support members of the military, law enforcement, and firefighting communities by donating 50% of their profits. The true secret to living is giving. And don't forget to join the RPG Coffee Club today. Don't wait until you run out. Stay ready to rock by having RPG Coffee delivered straight to your door each month with our coffee club. episode of Bucks of America podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Vance. Now, the guest I have tonight is Zachary Craig Hansen. Now, he is the author of Turning Feral. Now, he is a high-level, he's like a Joe Rogan type guy. He's got high-level jujitsu, ultra marathons, academic pursuits and interests. I mean, an entrepreneur all the way around, but he found his real unfiltered, authentic experiences being in the wild. And so this uh, prelude is to discuss him and himself and this like that. And then I'm going to take the time to read his book, which I got right here that he sent to me. And I'm going to spend the next few months reading this. Or, Well, it's not that thick of a read, so I'll probably get it done rather rapidly in the mix of my other books here. But uh, this is pretty exciting. So Zach reached out to me through, to, through LinkedIn, and he said, hey, I want to send you my book. It's like, sure, all right. Well, I wasn't actually sure I was actually going to do it. And the next minute, no, I get the book, showed up at my desk, at my doorstop there. So that worked out pretty great. So um, and he, I asked him if he wanted to be in the podcast. He's like, sweet, this is going to be fantastic. And now we get to actually dive into Zach. Now, what we've done is I've actually asked him a bunch of questions pre-setups so this way. And everybody that uh, is a long-time listener already knows what to expect with my uh, conversations here. So, man, Zach, take it away for us, sir. Yeah, well, well, first off, thanks for uh, obliging my cold reach out on LinkedIn, and, and I'm glad the book made it in one, uh, one, one piece, too. Yeah, no, so I'm Zach, and as you mentioned, you kind of hit all the, the high points, right? Like, I, I'm an adult onset hunter, so I did not grow up hunting. I did not grow up trapping. I did not grow up in a family that did any of that. I grew up in the South, South Carolina, to be specific, so I was always kind of tangentially exposed to it through friend groups, but I never committed. Um, for whatever reason, it just wasn't an interest of mine, you know, really until I got into my late 20s, close to my early 30s. And I actually was, you know, pursuing academic things. And I did a dissertation on the politics of food. And it really made me start to understand where in the hell my food comes from. Uh, and it was kind of a little bit of a concern for me. So at the time, I picked up a bow, a hand-me-down from a friend. Uh, and said, I want to learn how to do this. This whole, this seems intimate. It can't be that fucking hard. Excuse me. I don't know. Can I cuss? You, you, can, you can swear. I'm a big, like I have a literally American, my name on my title. So I, I'm okay. a big proponent of the first and second amendment. Well, that's perfect. So I, it was concerning. And I thought it was just going to be so easy to just pick up a bow, go on a deer, gut it, do all these things. And, you know, the book will kind of detail a lot of that, but I was so wrong. I was so wrong on the the level of ease. Like I just had this vision in my mind of what hunting was and it turned out to be absolutely nothing like that i gotcha so what were some of the uh your so when did you actually get your your bow then were you in your mid-20s mid-30s i was in my late 20s so um i was living in louisiana so my ex-wife at the time she was an fbi special agent so we were down in baton rouge louisiana um got a hand-me-down bow and you know i ridiculous how you learn because I am a I'm a slow learner 
I'm not that guy who picks up something and just nails it the first time. That's why I've, you know, been doing jujitsu for 15 years, ultra running, because I sucked for a long time and then I get mediocre. I don't never really get to the point of being great at it all, but you know, I get okay. So I knew to expect that when I picked up bow hunting. So I got this bow from a buddy I knew hunted with a draw length that was just a little too short for me. It was a little shorter than me. And I started to follow some of the influencers at the time. So I was following John Dudley. So I picked up a knock to it because I figured that was the right way to learn how to shoot uh, with a release. And I got in my backyard and I could not pull the damn bow back. I had no idea. It was, it was set for 70 pounds. I'm a strong guy. I thought I'd be able to do it. Couldn't do it. So I sat back there behind my fence wrestling this bow for weeks before I accidentally pulled it back and then accidentally dry fired it out of the gate. Oh no. Yeah. So, you know, it was just calamity after calamity. But yeah, late 20s and tough, tough learning curve. Definitely it is. It is. There's a lot of mechanics behind the whole process of bow hunting. And I, I'm a, I, like, I like to research things before I dive into something. So I'm you're smarter hunting. than me. So I, no, that's just like all comes down to wisdom. I have gray in my hair for a reason. I made a lot of, <laughs> of a lot, made a lot of learning uh, situations go the wrong way. So it's like, you just kind of go from there. But what, when I first got into archery was, is I think it was 20, Oh, 14, 2015. I started beginning actually researching the whole process for it. And I thought, like, who really kind of spun me into was uh, Joe Rogan because mm. he was kind of bored with it. And I've been hunting for years. So I wanted a, the, to, to the next level, which is pretty much compound bow. And then you got the mm. ultimate level, which you have, which would be your your trad bows. And then if you go one step beyond that, that, that would be your atlatls. And that's yeah. uh, that's not always illegal in a lot of different states. So it's like trad is where you're going to go. And that's that's expert level right there to be able to take down a, a bull moose with a trad bow. But man, it's, it's, it takes a lot of development with the whole process with it. And you know, what ended up happening after you dry fired your bow, did anything traumatic happen to your arms or hands? Cause that's a very traumatic experience. It, the, the answer is no, I was very lucky. I didn't send a string off a cam. Um, I didn't just wreck my forearm. I mean, my, you get that rattle through your bones from it. And that was a shock. And I put my bow down for a little while, but then I realized after that, thankfully nothing was broken. I didn't send anything into my eyeballs, but then I knew the mechanics. I'm like, I can pull this thing back. So then I was able to start pulling the bow back, releasing it, pulling the bow back, and then eventually got the guts to put a, you know, an arrow on the string and send it down my 25 little yard range right into a, uh, a horse stall mat that I could barely pull the arrow out of. And then, you know, fr from there, it was like this, the reps, because once I got that, I was starting able to play with my sighting. I was able to actually do it. Now I have to admit that I did send an arrow into a neighbor's roof, um, you know, pulling the bow back instead of down and up, which is kind of what I do now. Uh, but again, just that immense learning curve that was so tough to do on my own. And again, I wasn't as smart as you. I wasn't doing as much research. I was just kind of bull in a China shop, um, which I would not suggest for others learn from my mistakes, but eventually I got it. And then I was just, I'm a data guy. So I kept a spreadsheet. So I was shooting 200 arrows a day, uh, you know, well before I ever went on my first hunt. And so when you went on your when your first time, you you didn't you didn't change anything. So then did you start digging into the breakdown of FOC and broadheads and all that fun stuff during nope. this whole 
process? Oh, okay. I mean, it, it, it was such like my 23 and me says I have more Neanderthal DNA than like most people. And I think that's pretty true. Uh, so like I didn't nerd out for being a nerd. I didn't nerd out on the things I should have nerded out on. Right. Uh, you know, I just bought some uh, Montec G3s. I don't even know if I looked at, you know, how much they weighed. I didn't know how much I was, you know, holding up front. I just slapped them on, shot a few and was like, all right, like, let's go try this out now. And, and my first hunt though, not knowing anything, and this is where like that barrier of entry for hunting can be interesting is, yeah, I got a bow. Yeah, I figured out how to shoot it. Okay. But now what do I do for getting a license? Like, where do I go hunt? Like, I don't have family or friends that are in this area that have ever hunted that can take me on a, you know, put their arm around me, say, come on, pal, let's go. I've got a nice buck over here for you. And that was an adventure in and of itself. So then did you go to the DNR website? So tell me, tell, t- uh, describe the process you went through from when, how you learned how to, to buy a tag, go through the rules and regulations and then go on your hunt. Yeah. So I skirted it essentially. So what happened was I was looking all that up and I was trying to figure out how to get into a class in Louisiana with like the DNR to, you know, do the, the field day that you have to do. And then get your license, which would then obviously reciprocate in most other states. But being impatient, I was kind of looking up different outfitters in the Louisiana, Arkansas region. And eventually I landed on this guy who did pig hunts up in Arkansas on private land, which you don't need to have a license for what he told me at the time, which did end up being true, thankfully. He's like, you know, for 200 bucks, you know, bring you and a buddy up here. And I had a buddy who I kind of convinced to get in on this journey with me. And he said, you can shoot as many pigs as you want. He's like, I've got them. They're killing my crops. Just come kill them. I've got tree stands. I've got feeders, the whole lot. We'll get you on pigs. And and that's what we did. We paid 200 bucks, drove six hours up above Shreveport into Arkansas, into this town that was, you know, 40 miles from the nearest Walmart and hung out with this really interesting character um, who had a lot of cool taxidermy on the walls with some big boards. So we figured there was pigs there and spent, you know, the first weekend hunting. And it turned out to be, really boring to be honest we didn't see a damn thing the whole time yeah that is that is more than more likely than not you're what you're going to run into it's not as action-packed as that the uh, the guys on youtube and other places that demonstrate how action-packed it really is but there's a lot of times where i'll go up and sit in a tree stand and not see a darn thing but you know that's that's a good way to getting yourself into it now did you just take your bow and arrow up there or did you bring a gun with you well just my bow and arrow. And the guy suggested, you should bring a gun, you know, because, uh, you know, you should. But I was stubborn. I, I'm still stubborn. I was like, you know what? I've been practicing with my bow. Like, I'm taking something with my damn bow. But there were two interesting things that happened on that trip. One, I'd never been in a tree stand in my life. And I did not have a safety harness. And the second thing was, you know, talking about being boring when you're working up to your first hunt or you're going through this process of learning to hunt as an adult and you are seeing these influencers or like the Instagram or, you know, whoever else is on the different social channels and it's all action packed. Like you do get this expectation that that's what this should be like. And I think in my head, I had prepared myself for every single scenario. You know, a pig could walk in from this angle. 
I'm going to range it, be able to hit it, all that good stuff. But I never prepared myself for obviously the most likely eventuality, which was nothing. And that was probably the hardest mental hurdle to come over on that trip is because I never even considered nothing happening, um, which was the reality. Yeah, that is understandable because uh, when you know, how long ago was this hunting trip, this first experience? Six years ago now, almost. All right. So that is yeah. a, a, a good steady learning curve. So then you were only up there for the weekend, correct? Yep. Only up there for the weekend. We spent two days in tree stands, freezing our asses off for 12 hours. And I realized like getting down from a tree stand after sitting there still freezing and, you know, jackhammering in the stand, it's like getting in a fight. Like you feel like your body, your back, everything is just terribly sore. And the fact that I never practiced from a tree stand when I got up there and I was looking at the angles I'd have to shoot. I'm like, I don't know if I can even do this. You, you know, it's so much I did not take into consideration. Understandable. So then now after that, that, uh, 10 X learning experience, what happened after that? What was, what did you go through next? Yeah. So that I went through, so my ex-wife, her family is from middle Tennessee, you know, some of the whitetail Mecca of the U S um, and I'd always been afraid. Her, her family was a hunting family. Her dad right. was a deer hunter. Um, brother's a deer hunter, the whole lot, uncles, cousins, whatever. In fact, I'd always go every year to Middle Tennessee, Shelbyville to be precise. And they would have a yearly squirrel hunt where they'd have the Tennessee DNR come out. They'd raffle off stuff. And I always like, before I got into hunting, I'm like, this is so silly, but you know, they'd had such a blast and I was just so myopically focused thinking it was stupid that I never participated. And I always regret that hindsight being what it is, but it, you know, it was exposed me. So I thought, wow, I should really just go ask my father-in-law to teach me to hunt. And I thought he was going to be like, Oh God, this, this guy's asking me to, you know, sit in my tree stands or be on my hunting leases. But you know, the opposite obviously happened. You know, he welcomed me with open arms. He's like, let's do it. And when he said, let's do it, like he meant it. Like, it was a couple months before the season. So I had to go do my field day, get licensed and everything. But I started getting so much information and realizing that for so many whitetail deer hunters, it's a science. He was sending me photos, trail cam photos, food plots, clover plots, where his tree stands were, what the heights were, what the angles of shot were, where the deer would probably be coming in from. You know, it was absurd and eye opening to me. That's amazing. That I'm glad he really opened you up for open arms. I've always had warm experiences with folks that are want getting that want to move into it, and they, all I hear is a lot more positive interactions than they do have negative. And that's the the upside about hunters. We're very we want to share the knowledge because we're a very minute, a very small group of people. And if yep. and, and if if we if things go the wrong direction, we could lose this as an opportunity. And now we're starting to see some of that stuff show up in like New Mexico, where they're trying to make it an elite program for you know, in order for you to hunt. Or you got to buy into gaining access to the information. I think we have some technical difficulties here on Zach's end here. Looks like it has frozen on him. But also, while he's working on that, please drop a like. 
uh, comment. And then on top of that, too, please subscribe. I greatly appreciate your assistance and help to do that. I need all the help I can get to grow. I'm mean, only at 90 subscribers, so thank you for everybody that has uh, clicked that subscribe button. Uh, and if you are listening, please go ahead and tell your friends to open up a separate tab. Oh, there we are, Zach. You back? You know, I told you we would meet Murphy tonight, and it did not disappoint. So I apologize to the uh, to the listeners, but uh, we we made we were texting back and forth beforehand and joking about our, our tech savviness. And I said, "Well, something's going to happen," and sure enough, it did. So I apologize for that. Nope, that is that's just how that's how technology goes when it comes alive. And most people that do tune into lives, they already know what's going on. Good thing for you, I could talk, so it's it worked out pretty Perfect. well. So now you were discussing with me that before before everything froze, that your father in law was really going into the nitty gritty with things and providing you a very warm welcome. So all that information you were given, how did you digest that and turn that into a practice? Uh, what's what I'm looking for here? turn that into practice essentially. Yeah. And it was being guided, right? So it was him giving me this information, coaching me how to digest it. And then it was me and that same friend who went on our unsuccessful pick hunt who went out to Tennessee. And, you know, I go into detail on this in the book, so I don't want to give away too much, but oh, okay, that makes sense. ultimately, you know, we went out there and the first weekend, my buddy had success. He shot a doe. It was beautiful, but similar to the pig hunt where I did not exactly prepare myself for the real outcomes. The same thing happened for both of us. Whereas before we got there, we said, you know what? We don't know how to field dress a deer. So there's a processor nearby. We'll just drag the thing out of the woods, you know, cockily when we're like, when we get our deer and drive it to 30 minutes of the processor and call it good. Okay. What I didn't take into account, which leads to this whole calamity of errors and you know hilarity in the book, is he shot his doe at about 8 a.m. on a Sunday in Middle Tennessee. And what that means is everybody is at church, including the processor. So we got the deer out of the woods, like flipping, you know, weekend at Bernie's trying to drag this doe out, you know, dragging his head on every rock and sweating drive all the way to the processor as the day starting to warm up and the rigor mortis is setting in only to be saying like, you can drop your deer in the freezer, but please make sure that it's gutted. And we're like, oh shit. And so then we drove back to my in-laws another 30 minutes. So again, getting warmer and we're like, we can't lose this meat. So essentially we got backed up against a corner. My father-in-law was like, I'll be another hour at church. And we had to commit. So we propped a flipping iPhone up between the hind quarter of this dough, got out our Benchmade knife and, you know, just dove in literally and did a terrible job, but got it done. And we're able to eventually go and drop it off. Well, that is, that is always a uh, fun experience, but at least you're able to save the meat and such like that. And usually your first time is always going to be the roughest, but uh, you're lucky that at the time that you're, the process still did that. A lot of processes are here in the Midwest. They won't touch it unless it's deboned. You got to make sure oh, everything's wow. all removed before you can do it. So is that because you live currently in Idaho, don't you? I live in Atlanta, Idaho, which is a town of 35 people at the end of an 80 mile dirt road, no grocery store, no gas station. Uh, we're all self-sufficient. You know, we've got like already three feet of snow on the ground. So yeah, it, it's been a big curve since then for me too, just on the sustainable life aspect as well. And 
now I can definitely, you know, gut animals, skin animals. I got into trapping and tanning and doing all of that from a fur perspective too. So it's, it's changed a lot since then. Yeah, I saw. I know when I was flipping through the book, there you had. I did. Really, you also sent me that picture of you uh, when you had trapped your first beaver, which is which is always still a, a fun feat to achieve. Oh yeah, and it is. And actually, I've got the uh, the otter. Yeah, let me grab it because it's kind of cool. It's five. Yeah, and a half. Go ahead. Um, but yeah, you can see I've got ferns all over the place now. But this is the first otter that I got the other day. Okay. You know, nice, fleshed out and. Got to take it to fishing game to get it tagged up yesterday. But uh, yeah, it, it was a, from that point where we fumbled our way through gutting my friend's deer to my getting my first buck the following weekend and getting to do it again. The reps came, but it was after that deer, literally the month after I shot my first deer, I went through an unexpected divorce from my now ex-wife. And that was the real catalytic moment of my life where, you know, we didn't have any kids. And I was at this point where I was really getting into hunting. And I was like, I could live anywhere. Where do I want to be? So within a week of my finding out about this, I was in my car pointed north to Idaho and never turned back. No kidding. So you finished all your divorce. At least that's the upset about not having kids involved. It makes things a lot more easy to transition from point A to point B real fast. So that's pretty exciting that you made that big lope. Now, what motivated you to choose out of all the states that you could go hunting why idaho yeah and there's a little bit about this in the book too but my uh my ex-wife and i we did the normal kind of well somebody pointed out that it's not normal but we would do like a decision tree to pick out our vacation spots every year and we've gone to turkey we've done all these exotic vacations every year and we're like we never really explored the u.s so that year prior we right when i was getting into hunting decided to go up to Idaho. So we flew to Boise and drove up to Stanley, Idaho and the Sawtooth. And it blew my fucking mind. Like from the drive from Boise to Stanley, I saw my first bald eagle ever in my life. I saw elk. I saw antelope. I saw all these different critters and my first wolf in real life. And it just was insane. And like the Sawtooth Mountains, which is, you know, I live on the better side of the Sawtooth in Atlanta now from Stanley. Okay, But it, it was just a calling to me. And I told my ex-wife that I'm like, we are moving here at some point. And she laughed at me. She's like, oh, the FBI is never going to let me do that for 20 years. So maybe then and I was like, it's happening. So then when that all happened, you know, a month, a couple months later, I just felt that calling. And I just said, well, I'm going to go do it. Knock it out. Awesome, man. That's a, that's a amazing situation that you went through there. Unfortunately, it was, it's nobody ever wants to go through divorce. So with because it's like sounds like this has all been now has your progression of your well obviously we know that you you've gotten into trapping and everything that's changed so rapidly so now uh do you you in the book did you mention that when you got divorced yet yeah yeah so i it was immediately after i got that buck and that's when i went through the divorce and that was that catalytic event and made my way north and then started looking at property so i kind of toured all of idaho I, I mean, I had a little apartment in Boise that I was staying in for a few months, but ultimately found a cabin in this town I live in now that backs up to 3,000 acres of public land so I can open my door um, and be in nothing. In fact, going to the chapter when I sh shot my first archery bear, despite my efforts to do spot and stalk everywhere else around my cabin, 
in crazy terrain. I ended up shooting my first bear in my underwear off my back deck at like first light one morning. So, you know, it, it's out there for sure. That is smart to be able to do that. And so you, you put your, you put yourself in a very uh, place to succeed. So what do you do for work then? How are you able to be able to be so remote and be able to still be able to bring in an income? Yeah. And, and that's where I feel very lucky. So I, in my effort to keep up with the Joneses before I kind of went on this adventure, um, I had gotten into tech. So I'm not a technical guy by trade. I did work overseas out of school. And then I was like, well, this government salary is not going to pay the bills. So let me get into tech. So I went back and got a graduate degree in statistics, kind of made my way into an industry job at IBM, and then got into machine learning and AI. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. So I've just been very lucky that my entire professional career leading up to that, I'd been remote. It was always have bag, will travel. So I spent so much time on planes, flying to see teams in New York, San Francisco, or where Austin, wherever they were at. But as you know, things came, as the pandemic came, it all paired back. And so I was just able to be anywhere that I could have an internet connection. And that little town in Atlanta, Idaho, of all places, no cell phone service, but there is a rural telecom DSL line that'll give you 10 megs up. And that's just enough to do a Zoom call. Yeah, um, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So it worked and I had it. Now, what was interesting is, is I had to reframe how I worked for my job doing tech stuff because if the internet went down, which it would if we got 20 feet of snow up top where the repeater was, or you know, we're running our own power off our own little dam. So it would either freeze over or dry up in the summer. And if you know, if you didn't have a generator, which I didn't at the time, you were SOL. So I had to start being really good at being asynchronous with my communication. So my emails were better. My Slack was better. Everything was more pointed because at any time I could be off potentially for days. And I just made sure my employer knew that. And, you know, thankfully I was in a position where they understood and, you know, knew what I had just been through. So they worked with me quite a bit. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's funny how you mentioned Slack because I work in Slack all day long. Yep. Dealing with it's, all, it's all it is nowadays, man. Oh, I, I work with uh, the VA and I do a lot of testing for the DBQs and such. And so we just, we just, we, we, we've been testing like almost every single day for the last three, four months when I started getting started primarily focusing on VBMS testing. So it has been a, a wild ride. See, I originally wasn't in, in into technology. I've always been to work with my hands or sales. And then mm -hmm. I moved, I met my, my now wife, and I got a job working for a company that is got bought up by a bigger conglomerate. And now I, I've worked my way from working with veterans, like talking to them, scheduling appointments and stuff like that. Now I'm on the back end working with the VA, trying to make sure our our gap, our bridge between the VA and the, the practitioners we have in our network makes life easier for the veterans. And which, since I've been with the company, we've been able to take our 90-day turnaround time down to 21-day turnaround time. So if a veteran submits a, a claim for a compensation and pension, within 21 days, we're already seeing them in front of a uh, – practitioner and then going back and getting hopefully they're getting an increase or some type of approval that's awesome yeah and slack's a great tool to do all that stuff asynchronously to kind of get the job done and it's it's a hat tip to people 
and I know I'm fortunate and I don't want to overlook that, that I've been able to move to where I have, which is a Mecca for everything, like literally out my door, I can get over the counter tags for any game animal. Like I've got 15 wolf tags in my pocket for my wolf trappers license. I've got, you know, otter, beaver, mink, uh, fisher, you know, the whole lot that I've been able to just immerse myself in. And it's all because I've had a job that supported me in that. And I know that's rare, but it is becoming a little bit more of a, a reality for some folks. Like you can really do it anywhere, especially with Starlink. And Starlink's been a game changer for us up there as far as having the high speed internet as well. Nice. You got a little, little Elon Musk up in your neck of the wood. That's pretty badass. Yep. We, I, I got, uh, we, well, I live in a small, but I live in the mecca of, of whitetail hunting here in Wisconsin. A lot of people yep. think it's Iowa or Kansas, but when you look at the, the BNC or Buckmasters or uh, Pope and Young, the biggest bucks have ever been shot in history are to Wisconsin. And we do have this ridiculously cheap price for non-residents to come and get a tag. And it's like, I'm all encouraging for it because we have a lot of public land. I mean, heck, I, I in my area within it, within the 15-mile radius that I hunt, there's something like 4,000 acres of land to hunt. Now, this is all bluff country. So for you, this would yep. be, a, you'd love it because it's all up and down hills. It's, it's really got to be concentrated in how much you walk, how fast you walk, so you don't break a sweat. The only downside is, is that all we have is whitetail, a very small season for bl uh, black bear. But we do yep. have a lush, a lush amount of small game. And then we had, we've only had our inaugural or our, our elk season for four years now, five years. So that's been a very, no, four years. Four years is, we, and we only do, 10 tags so it's like good luck trying to get drawn for it i could probably be putting into i could probably be putting my daughter into it and she may not even get drawn until she's in her 50s yeah yeah i mean that's how it goes and that's why i idaho similar to wyoming for in-state residents is just a great place and i mean we're also very friendly for out of state because we don't have a point system you know it's over the counter you got to be online whenever they go up and it's first come first serve which is pretty cool um, in my opinion, you know, being a new hunter, because that's also that thing. It's like getting started in my thirties, almost, you know, I'm boxed out a lot from preference points for other places. Like, yeah, maybe I started a year or two ago, but I haven't been building those. I didn't have a dad who, you know, started putting those or putting my name in the hat for preference points in these different Western States when I was, you know, whatever the youngest age is five, six, whatever it is. Correct. And, you know, so there's a little bit of a disadvantage there too. So that's one reason I was also drawn to Idaho, just from the openness for, for new hunters. That is a plus too. Cause you, you, if you, if you venture just, just a little bit further West where you go into uh, Oregon, they have some funky laws with their preference points and even for their in-state uh, uh, folks too, it still takes a minute to get uh, opportunities and such. And plus it's like, you got a lot of people that are anti and then you got everybody else that wants to annex or leave uh, uh, Oregon to move over to Idaho. So, you know, you, you got that, uh, that, that separation between the two. Now, as you've, as you've moved out there, cause how long have you been out there now for what, four years, five years, about four years now. Yeah. Okay. So as you, what was some of the, the, um, things that you recognized right off the get-go that you needed to add to your toolkit to, to keep marching down your path to becoming a more, uh, more confident hunter? Well, well, first and foremost, when I got up to my cabin for the first time and I took like a, you know, half mile stroll out in my back door, it was fitness, right? I mean, I've done jujitsu, I've done ultra marathons at sea level, 
uh, it's just a different beast when you're over 7,000 feet. And, you know, I ended up doing a mountain tough, uh, course, I think it was a 4570. Uh, and it was just all lunges. And I was like, oh, I'm so fucking tired of lunges. But then when I went on my first elk hunt above 10,000 feet, it's still like I was huffing and puffing like a fat kid because, you know, I was like, oh, I'm in shape. You know, I run, I do all this stuff. But when you've got a pack, you've got your bow, you're in thin air. It's insane how much it drains you. So fitness was one thing. And that's something I've always taken very seriously and continue to this day. But the second was just involvement in conservation, to be honest. Like it's one of the best things someone had recommended to me. And I probably went a little overboard with it, but it's paid dividends now is like join these different you know, conservation groups. So I joined RMEF, so Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, ultimately, I eventually got to Idaho Trappers Association, good friends with the president there, Rusty Kramer. Uh, and then Idaho Fish and Game, like a, a good friend of mine is Commissioner uh, Tim Murphy. And, you know, we've had a lot of communications and I do my best to go to all the commission meetings I can. Because I, I think one thing that I've noticed amongst not all, but some of my friends who grew up hunting, like they don't really have an interest in that. It was just something they did. And for me, like I wanted to be a well-rounded hunter and I felt like I needed to understand why are we making these caps or quotas on certain animals? Why are people anti when this is something that I'm seeing is very a re rehabilitating for me and just a great way to put great table fare down? Uh, so that was the thing. So it was fitness and then understanding the, almost the political dynamics of the whole outdoor industry and specifically Idaho. And it was a wild ride, even in that respect, but it gave me contacts. It allowed me to understand where to hunt, why animals are pressured, why they're not. And it gave me a little bit more insight than I think I would have, if I just kept going blind. Makes sense. That's why one of the motivating factors of being in, 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 why I started my podcast because it's like I've always been a conservation. My dad was always involved when in Iowa when it came down to like the, the gun range or hunting or when it came down to certain regulations that it would affect his day to day or his friends that he would actually go to the meetings, go to town hall and listen to everybody speak on the matters and such. So that kind of motivated me into becoming where I'm at right now with everything. But with this being a global podcast because i do have listeners all across the world which is thank goodness for uh, soundcloud because it opens mm -hmm. up those areas in south america australia uh canada down in russia so it's like i it's interesting to see when i look at my analytics and where all my podcasts are being downloaded so now it gives me an opportunity to actually look at everybody's uh not necessarily geopolitics but like when it comes down to what's going on like what are they going through droughts are they going through um high acidity are we are we mm -hmm. having difficulties with population control kind of like what was going on when we saw with the the, the crab situation there and in, in, in uh the atlantic ocean i mean over a billion crabs just up and disappeared so it's like it's a very strange situation to have considering how many sonars are in the bodies of water and such to mm -hmm. keep track of all this stuff and we're there's been some interesting, I've seen some weird things pop up on my timelines when it comes down to what is hell happened in 2021. Like we saw there was a, a, a gigantic uh, sheet of ice fell off the Antarctica and some believe that something may have been released from that because mm -hmm. of what could be still in it. Because I remember when they had the, the 
earthquake over there in Japan, and when it opened up this cave system, it introduced 130, 140 different new species that we didn't even know about. So mm-hmm. it's like we have no idea what led off there. And it, from what I understand, it was a massive piece of ice. So who knows what's all going on? Then I don't know if you heard this, but there was a 40-ton bomb that was let off by the Navy uh, just out, out east of Florida. So mm-hmm. at this point in time in history, we kind of know we don't need to really test our bombs anymore. We know what the lethality is. So my mind is going to the cryptoid side of mine. What did they use it on? Yeah. Because <laughs> now we're yeah. starting to see Megalodon pictures start show up. Like there's um, footage surfaced from an oil rig in Japan that they have over an hour worth of footage from a Megalodon. Then That's crazy. early this summer, they took some pictures uh, to down there by South America. They saw this massive big old plume of fish. And then they're zooming in and zooming in. And they found a 70-foot Megalodon. It's That's like crazy. it's it's just weird how we're seeing all this stuff. Then, but then again, we we know more about the space than we do about Earth or the ocean's water. So, what's underneath the ocean uh, surface there? So, it's it's weird how would like w- did something get released that's eating up all these crabs, or is it because of all the garbage that we've that has been blown off the mainland across the world? That's there's like a Texas size floating island of garbage between California and, and Hawaii. So yeah. is, is it that causing the issues destroying this particular marine life? Yeah, well, I mean, that's to your point, though, it's interesting to see the development. And even if you think about, when you think about it on the macro scale like that, it's it's like space. It, it, you can't wrap your mind around it. But I thought I could at least wrap my mind around small and big game animals in Idaho. But even just in Idaho, there was so much more that I was just so unaware of. It was just like Pandora's box opened up for me when I started to peel back those layers of conservation and what really goes into it. And, you know, really kind of accelerated, I think, my hunting more than anything is understanding patterns and talking to people, talking to biologists before I'd go on hunts and, you know, things like that, that really kind of gave me the hockey stick growth curve which is smart to do to reach out to it. So I want to give, I'm kind of curious now. So do you still have your, your, your first bow that was given to you? Yes. So now I'm assuming now you've, you've, you've uh, graduated to new, more sophisticated technology. So I'm kind of curious, what are your, what is your go-to and your very remote area? Because you, do you even have a pro shop in your area? Or do you have, or have you learned how to do all the work yourself? Yep. So, well, again, talking about it in the book a little bit and learning stuff the hard way. So my first bow, it was a Matthews with wooden handles, a single cam, uh, great bow. It was hand-me-down. It was well-maintained. But my buddy who was going on this adventure with me bought a brand new Matthews, you know, beautiful bow. And the first day that we were out in our tree stands, he had put his bow on a hanger and he saw a deer coming in right at first light and took his bow off the hanger and it rolled the string right off. Oh no. Right. And so I had just gotten in my tree stand and I see him walking and I'm like, Oh man, he must've shot a deer or something. He wouldn't come over here if he didn't do that. So I get down the tree and he shows me his bow with his limp string and we didn't know how to fix it. And this was the Saturday. This was the day before he ended up shooting his doe. And we had to rush back to the trailhead 
find a pro shop somewhere about an hour away. They they're only going to be open to like noon. So we just hauled ass there, had to get them to, you know, fix it, you know, fix the cam because it had kind of bent it a little bit, shoot a few arrows. All right, we're good. And then we went back the next day, but that was an experience that made me say like, I need to learn, really learn. So I have a bow press. I restring my own bows now. All of that, I carry a little, you know, mini bow press in my bag when I'm out in the backcountry. Because you never know, a broadhead hits your string, you snag it on something. But yeah, that was a that was an event that made me really invest in understanding how to do it. And again, at that time, I didn't realize how remote I was going to be living, but it paid dividends for me when I could do all that on my own. Oh yeah, definitely. The, it may seem feeling like intimidated when you look at the price of a bow press or one of those bow vices because they're mm-hmm. the bow, bow presses are grand. Uh, the bow vices are two fifty, and good luck trying to find them used because they don't last very long on the open market. So sometimes yep. it's just easier to stag something brand new. And but for your a guy like in your situation, this is a perfect way to set yourself up for success. Now it's like I know that uh, Matthews. Now that you're able to remove the strings off the cams without having a bow mm-hmm. press, APA has yeah. been doing that for years. And there's a, there's and uh, what is that? I think oh, oh Bowtech. Bowtech's the other one that has that ability where you can be able to do everything in the field as well, next to some of the the diamonds and such. Yeah, and I shoot a Hoyt now for whatever that's worth. I've enjoyed that. Nice. You know, it's when it comes down to archery folks, the, the bow only comes down to what you are, what makes sense for you because everybody's going to have a different vibration in the grip. Like for me, I shot Hoyt up until I, uh, until I ended up uh, having issues with my elbow. So I switched over to elite. Now I'm shooting an expedition. So it's like, I go for whatever it feels natural. It feels very fluid. That's what I find like with archery is such a big attractant to it is that it's like, it's, it's, it's got a certain, um, acrobatic asset or aspect to it. So when you're drawing it back, you're, you're, you're getting your muscles into place and you're getting your anchor point down. You're, you're going through this mental checklist so you don't hurts yourself, dry fire your bow, or even like I've had situations where I've had, uh, my release, not the tension is not strong enough on it, where it will pop loose, especially with, yeah. with some of the hot shots or carters, if you have them too loose. Because sometimes, like I have one set, I have one release where it's just real, real thin. It's like I just bring it right back, I drop my finger on it, and just pull back. And yeah. that's what Judd Dudley teaches. He's a big proponent. If you're going to do a thumb release, your goal is to wrap your thumb around it, rest on it, and just let your bones naturally draw back so this way then you're getting that through shot yep and that's what I, I learned on a silverback from john dudley so yeah i guess that's the sister release to the knock to it where you actually punch it uh, i eventually ended up going to the knock to it with a, a punch a thumb release just because i wanted that consistency because it was a little jumpy for me like, like holding it at like 15 pounds or whatever um and on some of these where I was really needing to hold it for a long time, um, on some of these longer shots, I felt a little more comfortable with a knock to it. But I still practice with a silverback to get that, you know, that technique down. Oh, definitely. Then, uh, so we're, we're let's see here. I'm looking at uh... we were talking about conservation. We were going through all the the learning curve of being out there. Yeah. So. I'm trying to, it's like, since I haven't read the book, it's like, you keep on telling me, it's like, oh, it's in the book. It's like, oh man, it's like, I'm trying to reformulate my thoughts this way that I'm not trying to give away from the book. Well, let's see here. 
Well, we can touch on it, and I'll just say it's in the book too. So shoot away. Don't 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 censor yourself on account of me. So I'll still hopefully people will pick up the book too. I think so too. I feel like it's going to be it's a, it's a very attractive book. So it's like and on top of that turning feral, it kind of gets it gets a person looking. At it. It's like now because when you think of feral, it's like you are. But the good thing I like how you you chose a ram instead of like a hog because then it's like well is this book about hogs because turning feral is a common thing when you got mm-hmm. uh, pen pen raised hogs all of a sudden get released to the wild and all of a sudden hey now we got some feral hogs. But that's the best part about the your journey with the whole process. And unless you have some really uh, credible people giving you positive quotes, which is always, which is always a good thing to have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, the journey though, after that, it was elk hunting, antelope hunting, bear hunting, and then getting into trapping, which was its own interesting thing. I'd always been fascinated with mountain men as a young kid. I always thought I was born in the wrong era. So actually of all things, the beaver trapping was something that I was so attracted to for some reason, but again, Learning and finding mentors and trapping, I would argue, is 10x harder than finding a mentor and hunting. Uh, there's just so few, and it's so mm-hmm. ran over by you know aunties or whomever um, because of the cruelty of it. And I go into that in the book of like wrestling with my own morality with some of the trapping things that I, I've I've been through and getting eventually getting mentorship by you know. I guess you'd call them old timers in the space, which can be kind of violent, even though it's very much a, a kind and nice way to put an animal out of its misery. But sometimes it's very intimate. It's way more intimate with an animal that's live caught than, you know, from 30 yards, 40 yards from an animal that doesn't necessarily know you're there. It's a, it's a different experience and one that I think everyone should have to go through, to be honest. To, to kind of really come full circle on what morality is and what it means to really connect with, you know, either food you're going to eat or fur you're going to take to make mittens or hats or blankets for your kids. Um, and that was the full circle. And that was the whole point of the book. It's, you know, I ultimately went to the woods after this divorce to come into my own, rehabilitate myself and ultimately get away from people. I was just so done with everything post-divorce and bits and bobs from the book. I ended up finding this great mountain woman and I'm remarried and now have two kids. Oh, um, that was, a, that, that, that escalated quickly. It did <laughs> extremely quickly. Uh, but it was great. She's my partner and everything as far as like hunting, trapping, raising kids out there in the wild. I mean, she's a G and then, you know, the community there of 35 people, like I just, I was so over people. I didn't want to really, you know, deal with people, but it was kind of like the Grinch. My heart grew three sizes to a degree because out there you have to rely on other people. Avalanches, you know, and then going to in the book, you know, just these different events that happen. And my wife, my new wife almost died right in front of my eyes when she, the dog took her out of her knees and she cracked her head on a rock. Ooh, scary. And, you know, we're four hours away, you know, from a hospital and she was eight months pregnant, like the town comes together for things like that. And so like what it really did is hunting. I thought it was going to be this journey into a solo, you know, be like the Remy Warren solo hunter. I just don't want to be around anybody, but it really actually brought me into a community that I care about Um, broadly, like this podcast, other people I've met through this journey and the actual community I lived in. 
And that's probably been the most rewarding and unexpected turnout of this whole journey, which is what prompted me to write the book. That is, that is quite remarkable that, that everything went, that it ha- how it happened to you. So, I mean, man, talk about like having your life flash between your, in your eyes when you see your wife fall down like that. Yeah. You know? I got lucky. My wife likes to hunt. She likes to do that stuff. She's not much of a trapper, but I'm not much of a trapper either. I have a, when you, we were talking about mentors that I actually know, I've had actually had a trapper on my podcast twice. He lives in Iowa and he's trapped everything. So he's got mm-hmm. a very well versed knowledge and stuff like that. And he's inviting me to come down. It just, having the time to get down there, but also considering the bad weather. I'm not a big fan of dealing with, I don't, I, I will be out in the bad weather, but I don't like driving the bad weather because mm. I am far more cautious because I've been in the ditch. I've ran into things. It's like, I don't, I don't want to go through that, that headache. It's like, mm-hmm. I'd rather just make it like, well, it's like, if it's going to snow, I'll go the day before, get the night before and then be, be there ahead of schedule, just kind of like planning ahead. It's just like the, the joys of experience of going through that. So out of, um, all the animals you've trapped so far, what's been the, the most intriguing to learn about their habits and their, their processes is to be able to get the animal to step on that square inch in a hundred, hundred thousand acre area. Wolf. Yeah. Wolf. Um, and I haven't succeeded yet either. And I've had some strong mentors helping me along the way. Like it's, uh, you know, I, I, if you believe in spirit animals, I've always believed a wolf is that for me. Like when my, my mom's dad, my grandfather, he was a hunter, but he died when I was really young and he had a cabin in Georgia and we always go there as a kid. And I always had these, you know, call of the wild ideas. And he had this beautiful picture of a wolf and I have it up in my net cabin now. Um, and I was always just attracted to that. I never thought about hunting a wolf. I always thought I was going to have a pet wolf as a kid, right? Like most kids do. Um, And I never thought about it. But then when I got out to Idaho and I learned about the conservation efforts, the reintroduction of wolves, and we have five packs running around our area in Atlanta, Idaho specifically. And I'd see all the elk kills. If you drive up and down our road in the winter, and it's just a blood, a literal bloodbath all around. So then I went and got my wolf trappers education course and learned to snare and, you know, put out the footholds, but they are the smartest animal like I've ever experienced. Like you can be like fourth in inches with a wolf and they'll outsmart you. It's just amazing. And I put in so many hours, so much effort, you know, the descenting, the everything, the, the trail sets, the pee post, everything. And I just haven't been able to connect. So it's not something I've caught. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's the thing that I've been most enamored with and something that I, I've already got wolf steel on the ground this year. And, you know, hoping that I'll connect you know, sooner rather than later, you know, for conservation efforts and for my own ego, um, to be honest, but it's, uh, it's been interesting. And then second to that is beaver because beaver are just freaking awesome. That's what that's what I was leaning towards is to finding out because you have there's pine martin you can there's there's a variety of different animals you can trap because we've all seen a mountain man we've all seen uh, the uh, life below zero and such and be, I've always been enamored by that because they are really the ones that are living freedom but it's like mm-hmm. when you, you, there's certain times in a, in a person's life to be able to do that and the first time for a man to do that is when they don't have kids and it's like by time. I saw the attraction to being going to those remote areas and being away from everybody. 
I was still too young and immature and, and a one to recognize what it did. And then now I have a wonderful nine-year-old. So it's like I doing something like that now, it just, it, it does not work with my life plan to be able to do that because it definitely changes your whole perspective. And I'm no longer, my, uh, my, I see my daughter, uh, often, but it's like, I don't want to put more and more miles away from me. Granted, I could do a lot of stuff here in Wisconsin, but yep. it's one of those things where it's, you're not, I'm not as motivated because I, I have all the luxuries that you don't have. So yep. that with that mind, it's like, it's like, not like it's, it's a, not, it's, it's a, not a lazy man's thing to do. And it's like, but you also have to weigh out everything else that you have because trapping is a lifestyle. And if you don't have your life around, revolving around that particular topic, good luck trying to be able to be flourishable on it. Cause it's like, it's difficult. Like my friend, I was talking about Jeremy Salter to been on the podcast a couple of times. He was, um, he, he's been able to make a living strictly on trapping. And then like, so there are some places that will pay him to come trap off certain animals, mm -hmm. but he also does uh, guided work in the spring and the fall. So that, that amount of work pays for his lifestyle. Yeah. And, so, and that's definitely not where I'm at. Like I've had to accept that it's a, a hobby for me. And even as a hobby and like with fur prices being what they are, it'd be very hard um, to make a living on it. And some people do, and that's great. But to your point, like, here's a fun story. Ultimately, like, when you talk about having to commit to it. So we live out in the middle of nowhere. I can get on my sled or my side-by-side -side in the summer. I can go run my trap lines, right? A couple miles out, a couple miles back. We're good to go. But that means that I'm up every day, hand on the Bible with my wife, 3.30 a.m., write for an hour. I still write books, so I'm writing other books write for an hour, then I'm out either setting or running trap lines, which means I'm usually bringing back animals. And then those animals are hanging and looming over me while I do my full, you know, eight plus hour workday of Zoom calls. Maybe I'll get a break and can start skinning one at some point. But that also means that I'm up till at least midnight skinning animals, um, either folding them and putting them in the freezer or starting to flesh them or leaving them out in the cold so I can flesh them the next day. And it's a long process. And it's it's one of those things where, you know, when you shoot a deer, you shoot an elk, you're like, woohoo, it's exciting. And then you're like, oh, you know, the old trope, like, oh, the real work's starting now, boys. Like, let's True. get to it. But when you're trapping, like, that's real work because you don't want to put a hole in the pelt. You don't want to, you know, get aggressive with it. And like, because those things matter, whether you're keeping the pelt yourself or selling it, it's, it's intricate it's detailed it's intimate in the way that you have to be focused and you find yourself up to one two in the morning and then you're like oh shit i gotta wake up in two hours <laughs> you know and it's it's this cycle that you can only last for so long um but it is a commitment like you said and that is it's a hard life yeah. i don't think there's anybody harder working in the u.s than like somebody who's trying to make a living traffic Oh, definitely. Cause, uh, there's the guy on mountain man. I can't remember his name, but he flies, he lives down. Well, he, I think he lives in Seattle or, or Oregon or whatever. And then he goes up to Alaska where he lives at that. I mean, he may have things have changed. I haven't watched the show in a while, but that's what he makes. A, uh, well, a portion of his living off of his doing that, especially mm -hmm. when pine Martins through the air or through the roof and such. But we've, we've lost the value of the hair and why we do the, the trapping and why we used to do it. Cause I remember 
Steve Rinella talk about growing up in the 80s and stuff like that and listening to people having long trap lines and being able to go and, and do such an act, activity and be actually bake a living off of it, make a living off of it. Now it's like we've, we've gone through everything to be synthetic. It's like we've lost the value of why we do it. Now we have these rampant issues with uh, raccoons and in, in, in when you come down in the southern states, you know, then you got rabbits and then they tend to, to excel and, or they'll, they'll go through their seven-year cycles and such. So there's like you always got to be it's, – it's just unfortunate we don't have that market for it anymore because that provides a lot of uh, balance with everything because when you get those um, – what is it? Uh, you get the beavers and what, what's, um, what's, the other, what's the other animal that lives in the, in the water? I know what it is too. Otter. There we go. Otter. And then the other one is that just likes to burrow itself, makes its homes in the banks. And the, uh, the muskrat. There we go. The muskrat. That son of a gun is that when that gets into a uh, river bank, that becomes, they become very destructive rather rapidly. And then it's like, then the city has to come find somebody to do it. They're going to pay them to do it. And they're going to, they're gonna, since, since it's basically a blank check, they're going to charge them wherever they want. So it's like, Oh man, it's like you we well, so, to be able to take care of that within the community itself. Well, so that's kind of what we've done up in Atlanta. So I, you know, actually resigned this past week, but I spent two years as the chairman of the Rural Atlanta Highway Commission. So you know, we have you know 60 miles of dirt road that we have to keep relatively graded. We have to go clear slides, rock slides, trees, all that stuff year round. But the beaver, because the road runs right along the river you know, beaver have washed it out and caused millions of dollars of damage. So I actually worked with Idaho Fish and Game and I got a special kill permit because I'm a licensed trapper. So, you know, I wasn't charging the highway department. I was doing it on my own, but these areas where these beaver would build up the dams because no one's trapping anymore out there. Really, it's just me. You know, we'd have hundreds of beaver all up and down. Like I took 12 beaver out of one lodge and then wow. within like a month it was rebuilt. It's just amazing how many are up there. And yeah, it, it was nice that we were able to work with fish and game to be able to do that to your point. Um, but you know, not making money on it, but still, you know, the ability to help out the community. Cause without that, all we could do is take the backhoe down, rake the dam and then wait to see where they popped up again, which they would. Yeah. Cause they're just that they're, they're, animalistic instinct is to go back to it and be able to build a home and unfortunately it always ends up provide causing damage to everybody else that we're, we're we're literally in we're in their backyard just live just paying rent on it yep 100 percent. but yeah it's been a journey man 100 percent. and it's been a steep learning curve and i you know i've talked with some people who hunted their whole lives they're like you have been able to do so much more than i have and i've been hunting my entire life and it's like well it, it was an interesting way to get into it as an adult with the maturity and the funds, frankly, to be able to go as full bore in as I was able to. But it it was interesting to kind of see in a lot of instances, I, granted, I have tons to learn in every aspect, but a lot of like average hunters, I've been able to excel quite rapidly, um, you know, with a lot more initial fumbling up front. But once I kind of hit that street and really got into everything, it's you know, the beaver trapping helps my elk hunting and the wolf trapping helps, you know, antelope hunting. It's funny where you start to see these connections across these different animals and how the patterns and, you know, everything ties together. What was your, so when you, when you, you just mentioned like with beavers and elk and, and everything, I was like, what was your biggest, well, like what, what was the trigger for your aha moment that 
these two go these the, 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 these two live within their own realms like what was that uh how'd that occur well it was just the catalyst moments of trapping that made more sense for my hunting and what i mean by that is when you trap and i mentioned it a little earlier it's so intimate like you're in there like i remember the first time i was in like an area that i was beaver trapping never caught a beaver before i knew where they were coming out i had conibear set up at the entrance and extra exits of the lodge i had all the swim lanes just rigged i had footholds on the dam where i broke through it man I thought there is no way I'm coming home without a beaver the next day. You know what happened the next day? I didn't take home a beaver. Like, it's just, the thing is these animals are so smart and they become so quickly, you know, trap aware. And if you make one mistake and you don't take the time to study them, which I didn't do enough that first time, understanding really where they're coming at, setting up trail cams, doing the things that I knew I should have, but didn't, they know. And it was that level of intimacy that I had to get with Beaver, Martin, Wolf still that translated back to more of the spot and stalk nature of like taking my time, really understanding what these animals are doing at a given time, doing the research you talked about at the beginning, like, you know, what is elevation doing? What is the weather doing? What is, you know, all of these different factors, what moon phase are we in? And that's what really translated from trapping because trapping forces it. Whereas sometimes you can get away with shit and hunting, you know, like there's luck, there's, you know, just other things that kind of play into it more. Um, or you can kind of brute force your way a little bit, but trapping, you can't do that. And, you know, that's, that was the catalytic moment for me to translating from one to the other. It's, you know, focus, understanding, and then taking that to another pursuit made me more successful in the other, you know, pursuits like elk, antelope, bear, things like okay. that. Actually, it's a very good parallel to them. So with you being in the area up there in Atlanta, did you use um, the internet to help you learn more skills or did you actually have uh, people in the area be able to take you and guide you along with what they're past their knowledge on? If he's listening, I owe so many beer to Coon Creek Outfitter or Coon Creek Outdoors on YouTube. Um, I, I think his name is Stu, uh, Stu Miller, maybe. But anyways, he, he runs a trapping channel he has for a long time. And he has these great tutorials for, you know, a trap setting. But more importantly for me, it was how do you skin an X, a fox, a coyote, whatever. And then how do you flesh it? How do you board it? And then do you want to do your own self-tanning? And he was my you know, God of trapping, like at least of skinning, fleshing and learning. So like similar to how I started with the deer with an iPhone between its back legs stuck with rigor mortis, I'd have my little iPad set up right next to this fox that I was about to skin. And, you know, just like one by one, like I'd have a fox and I'd have my Havilon and I'd be running it down the Achilles. I'd be looking, trying to hit the iPad deposit with my elbow so I didn't get blood everywhere. And, uh -huh. you know, just step by step. So it was YouTube. I mean, I didn't, some of the old timers would come up to my cabin every once in a while and, you know, shoot the shit, but it was mostly just digital mentors, man. That's the one hat tip I have to the technological age we live in. It's, I wouldn't have been able to do it without that. Oh yeah, definitely. I've, I've learned so much about like, I learned how to grunt 
and and bleat through YouTube, setting in the field like I'm in the rut right now. I'm not seeing any action. Like, what can I do? What tools do I have that I can actually go forward? And like with being able to have social media, we were able to learn all these different techniques to help us become better and better. Like I was talking to Orlando Vivon uh, last week when he, about how he shot his, uh, his 195 non-typical there in Iowa. Yep. And he was just going through all the things that you were going through. And he's only been hunting since 2019. And so mm -hmm. this was his only second buck. And it's just like, he, he, and our, our, what I told him at the end of the podcast is that you learned a tr you've learned it. You'll just learn all the things that everything you've done this year in 2022, always follow your gut because he was getting a lot of negativity and a lot of, a lot of doubt. Mm -hmm. But it's like, he's like, my data showing this, my wind showing this It's like, I'm all my data points are making sense. And he's similar to all of us. We all take, we all keep track of our exposure by multiple means like i do a lot of my a lot of my detailing in onyx map because this way I, I i i like it it's very good and I've, one thing about it is that it's very widely accepted by the dnr because it's like if you ever get in a fishing game if you ever have a conversation about trespassing that is their, their go-to because onyx has done such a fan now the podcast is not sponsored by them or any by any means but they just do a very good job for it and that's kind of what kind of leads me over towards is because if the authority is using it i'm going to use it Yep. I've got my elite membership. I love Onyx because, you know, like we live where there's no cell phone service. So it's, you know, great for me and where I can mark traps and I can even let people know that I'm friends with who might be hunting an area where I have live traps. I can send them a, you know, drop a pin and be like, hey, try not to step right here, please. Eggs, I don't want to reset it. And, you know, yeah, I don't want you to have a bad day or your dog or anybody else to have a bad day. So Oh, definitely, man. That is, that is genius. That, that is uh, really thoughtful of you to be actually go the extra mile. Like, hey, watch out for this stuff right here. So well, beyond that, too, I actually have laminated signs. Like if you talk about anxiety, okay. the first night that I ever had foothold traps out, I didn't sleep. I had all these imaginations in my head of, you know, somebody in our community's dog, because everybody's dog just kind of runs feral themselves out there, mine included. And, you know, when you have either bait or lure or something, I had these, well, they weren't nightmares because I wasn't sleeping, but these visions of like, oh no, so-and-so's lab's going to get stuck in my trap. Or, you know, people are going to be out hiking. So I I go above and beyond where I always print out signs, which Fish and Game, they have a little template you can use that says, hey, live traps around. So if you go around my cabin for like a two mile radius, you're going to run into these signs all over the trees. Um, or if I trap down river, I put them up where it's very visible from the road because it's just, that's not worth it. Those are the horror stories and the things that, you know, really fuel, you know, anti-trappers, you know, because no one wants to get their dog. I don't want to get my dog stuck in a trap. It's not lethal. Um, and it can be very easily released, but it's, it's still not a fun thing to go through. And I think that's something that trappers nowadays have to be extremely cautious about and extremely vigilant about to educate people um, what's going on in the areas where people recreate. Cause to frankly, you know, people recreate where people trap sometimes not, but most of the time it's true. There's not a 0% chance that someone will stumble upon what you're doing. Oh, exactly. Even with uh, some of the public land that we have around here and some of that, those who trap, uh, luckily a lot of, a lot of trapping seasons don't start until after, well, pretty much when, after all the hunting seasons over with anyways, mm -hmm. but you, we, it is a, it is a wise thing to do, but all the public land I've walked on, I have not seen any of those signs out there. But then again, 
uh, we don't in my areas like I don't have a lot of whole lot of bodies of water going through there where they're going to have uh, those those animals that are, are high uh, target animals to trap for. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I was thinking about this here with the, with everything because you you have two kids. How old are your kids? Well, we have two under two now, so we have a one year seven month old who is just a fireball. She's a little girl, and she is you know, a feral child through and through. Um, she like, she'll cry when we take her in. She just wants to be out in the snow, you know, playing whatever. And then we have a now, I guess, almost three month old, pretty much Irish twins. You know, they were back to back, um, quick, quick fire. Yeah. I know that my wife is an Irish twin. So it's like, yeah, they're going to, they're going to, you're going to have a, well, at least the nice thing is you, you're well-wounded enough where you can be able to provide them an education outside of going to public school. So it's like, and you'll be able to do it all at home. It's like, that's the thing I'd like to do with my kiddo, but it's like, it, I don't have the flexibility with my ex to be able to do that. But uh, that would be nice to be able to pull them out there. Cause it's like, she's at the point in time where we, where we can focus primarily on math and reading and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. look at sentence structure and such to, to be able, cause not, cause when you're at school, their, their whole method is confusion because that you go from English, then you go to science, then you go to math math or, or you'll switch to PE and it's, there's no constant, there's no constant with the whole process. You're, you're jumping from one thing to the next. So this way, then the information that was just divulged to them now is no longer, it's kind of muddied. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And so we're excited about that. And also just the coolness, like, you know, when I had that otter and a beaver downstairs that, you know, our daughter comes and pets and looks and, you know, investigates. And then she sees me fleshing it and she's like, you know, touching stuff and, you know, enjoying it in the outdoors. And, you know, I, I believe there's something in the fresh air they're getting out there versus, you know, a city or something like that. So it's a, we're very fortunate, but it's a handful having two kids under two, trying to run trap lines, trying to write books, trying to keep a job. It's a, it's a busy life. Good thing your wife is just a, like you said, she's a G when it comes down to the whole process. Now, the nice thing is though, like with you being in that, like I've had conversation, not online, but offline where like, what is the, what is an appropriate age to get kids introduced to it? It's like immediately, like yeah. if you're, if you're in a situation like Zach Hansen here in Atlantic, Idaho, it's going to be immediately. And yeah. like, then you have the perspective here of what that's like, will they live in uh, Madison or Eau Claire or Rochester? It's like, when do I, you know, it's like, you should do, you, you should be doing it right away. Like when, when I shot my, I have a buck behind me here. Mm-hmm. When I shot her, my daughter was three years old and she was out there watching and while well, I was sitting there caping it and pulling, breaking down the meat and stuff like that and going through the whole process. Like I was, I was doing the whole thing for 12 hours straight for breaking down the animal. So it's like, but you know how it is. It's like, you're going to be, you're going to be dedicating so much more energy for whether an animal you, you trap or you shoot. Now, Zach, do you primarily just bow hunt or do you gun hunt as well? I have never taken an animal with a rifle and it's not for lack of want. I, when I got into this and I got into bow hunting, I thought it was some sort of more righteous pursuit. Right. Um, and it wasn't until I came out West when I realized like, it doesn't matter what weapon you take an animal with, like you're getting your ass kicked no matter what. And it's hard. Um, so I ended up getting a 300 PRC and, you know, I ended up again, because I didn't know anything. I went to a long range shooting course. So was able to take it out to about 1500 yards and ping steel there, which was cool, but I don't shoot it enough to feel confident. Like I've got it zero to 200. Um, I've taken it with me on some hunts and never had the opportunity. 
I'm not against rifle hunting. It just hasn't been a priority for me yet. And again, now I'm back in that lull where I feel like I need to go to another course or, you know, really get out and practice throwing lead down range before I feel comfortable, you know, trying to take an animal with it. I feel way more comfortable with my bow, but that's also because I can sit here and shoot, you know, just 10 yards and get reps in or go outside and I have a hundred yard range for my bow and I can shoot 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, up to a hundred. Yeah, yeah, that, that is a big thing. Cause that's why I kind of, what, why motivated me to get into archery. Cause I can go back and pick up my ammo. It's like, I, I shoot my five arrows and I go down and grab and pull them back and shoot five more with, I mean, with 300, well, yeah. it's like, that's like a dollar 75 around that gets real expensive, real fast. Yep. And so like I shoot a 30 out six and that's a dollar 60 around right now. And I live in, in a well-populated area, but it's like, uh, what it comes down to the, the availability of lead is because of what happened during, I think it was 2010 or 2011. Uh, during the, during that time frame, they sh- the government shut down all of, or, or not, if not all the uh, lead mines, mm-hmm. like they shut down all the big ones, big ones down there in Missouri. And that, that has shown ripple effects as of now, but the best way to get rid of a means is to stop being able to, or st- remove the ability to produce them because you can't yep. get rid of the second amendment. Cause it's like, if you, well, if you do that, well now everybody's going to be armed. And, and if somebody comes knocking on my door, it's like, well, I can't call the police or the ambulance because <laughs> what I did was illegal. And what I did right now is illegal. So it's like, well, I just got to call eight one one. Yep. <laughs> exactly. I was, yeah. I, was, I was listening to that argument. It's like, that's actually really well put together. Cause it's like, now you're, you're, you're leveling the playing field because the people that are not going to follow law are not going to follow it regardless. Yep. No, a hundred percent. And it's just, it's a, well, we live in crazy times. We know that, but yeah, but to answer your question, I've been predominantly a bow hunter um, and a hobby shooter and hopefully we'll get better at it and be able to take an animal with my rifle one day. I mean, I take my 22 on my trap line. So that's kind of my dispatch weapon. So I'm, I'm doing that um, from a shooting perspective. Definitely. So then as a sidearm, what do you carry for a sidearm then? Cause I know just in the last like two months, we've had those wrestlers getting tangled with the, with the grizzly bear. Then we had a one guy get chased by a mountain lion. We've seen somebody get bluff charged. I mean, there's been a lot of heavy aggressive animal interaction here over the last few months. Yeah. I carry a 44 mag usually on a chest holder. So a super red Hawk Alaskan, um, that's kind of my go-to, uh, and bear spray and fun story. And this is not in the book. So I'll tell you this one. Okay. Uh, my buddy and I were elk hunting up in the white or not in the white cloud. Sorry. We were up in uh, Henry's Lake. So kind of up near West Yellowstone. So okay. grizzly bear country. So we were carrying bear spray. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I'd almost rather carry bear spray now than a 44 Magnum. And the reason being is we were driving to the trailhead for archery scenes. This was in September, super warm. And we're in my truck. We're going down this dirt road. My buddy's kind of putting his boots on beside me at 4.30 a.m., whatever. And all of a sudden you hear, Psh! and he goes, shit, bear spray. And all of a sudden the whole cab fills up with bear spray. Oh, shit. So what had happened is his release on his bear spray had come off. And it was in his bino pack, which was in the floorboard. And he was putting his boot on and he just crunched the trigger. And it sprayed directly into his leg. And, you know, 
I'm buckled. So like I'm trying to pull over eyes swelling, throat swelling, <laughs> we're rolling out of the car and, you know, laughing and crying all at the same time. It was terrible. Um, and it was funny because he took a direct hit to his pants and his pants were orange and his leg was orange and it started to swell. And then we kept hunting that day. Like we let it all go. We washed our eyes out and it was just a miserable day to hunt. And uh, about halfway through the day, the poor guy's like, man, I can't keep these pants on. I'm starting to sweat. So he ended up taking his pants off and hunting in his underwear the rest of the day. But it was just, it was insane. So bear spray works is the moral of that story. And I would almost rather get shot with a 44 Magnum than get bear sprayed. Oh man. The thing is too, it's like, I've listened to some of the segments from Steve Rinelli says once, once the bear spray goes off on your gear, it's, it's done. You can't do anything with it. They were, he was talking about like the means that he would use to be able to try to remove the smell and it, you, 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 he could never completely remove it out of the fabric. So it's like, well, time for some new gear. Yeah. I think that was kind of, we, we definitely washed those pants, but I'm sure everybody was smelling us from a mile away that day, which is, you know, my excuse of why we weren't successful. It wasn't the heat. It wasn't the moon phase. It's that we were walking bear spray scent uh, <laughs> balls. You know, yeah, that's good. Like it does play a role, but it's you know, playing the wind. That's the biggest thing. I know this year I've really honed in on playing the wind. And it's like, I was, I spent some time up North hunting at a buddy of mine's place and his prevailing wind is North Northwest. And so I mm-hmm. sat in that tree stand at 25 degrees, 15 mile an hour winds. And I Ooh. dealt with it and, uh, I had encounters, you know, I sat there, I prayed a little bit and the good Lord answered my questions and uh, answered my prayers. But the, opportunities were just too young i got a spike mm-hmm. buck a little forky a, a a doe and a fawn and talk about getting to your morals is like man that doe would have been great in the freezer but she had a fawn and that fawn was that year and a half year old mark and it's like or fresh off for really getting rid of the spots and it's like man i i just couldn't do it i just didn't want to pull the trigger and i want it's like well you know if she's pulling that but what came to my mind was is that what if that spike buck was the twin of that fawn of the doe yeah. Don't know if that's true or not. Cause I was like, I've always seen like, I I've had properties that produce twins and mm. there always be uh does. So it's like, I, I never know if, if they, if the, if it could be two separate genders for, for one that when they have their twins. So it could possibly been that way, but like that, if that's the place that if that's the thing, it's like, that's a, that doe has as, as more protection than anything else in the property. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh everything's a mind twist out in the woods. I think that's the biggest thing is it's the most meditative, frustrating and intimate experience you can have on earth is just getting out there and chasing animals, whether you take one or not. And when you do take one that you regret, or then you don't take one that you regret, like there's so much mental growth you go through on any hunting journey, whether that's squirrels or whether that's big game or trapping, it's just, if you talk about, and this is the thing I never understood when I saw hunters growing up and why I never went to it. I didn't understand the level of maturity you really need to be a good hunter, the understanding of animals and conservation. And when you get out there and you really start to learn, and especially as an adult, I feel you can appreciate it a little bit more especially if you don't have a mentor to you know coach you to appreciate it. But if you want to learn about yourself, if you want to learn about, you know, just 
the world that God's given us, like get out in the woods, period. Oh, definitely. I think one of the biggest takeaways in my youth was the definition between life and death, because you, when you, for well, the first time you pull that trigger and you see that animal fall, whether it be a rabbit or a squirrel or, or a, a moose, when that mm-hmm. thing falls, it's like, you know, that's like, there's nothing you could do to rewind that, uh, rewind that situation back. So yes. with that playing in mind, it's like, it always put, makes you think like everything, every action has a reaction to it. And that consequence could be gr- dire type scenario. So that's one thing that I really resonated, like as I've got older and recognized some of these lessons that I've learned from one with, with my father, it's like, now I have appreciation behind that. That's why I think it's always good to get, like you mentioned, get out in the wild. Now, there's one thing that I, I'd say it just kind of came to me is like mental health. Mm-hmm. You just you went through a divorce. You moved thousands of miles away from the south. How did that? How did how did what you went through with the divorce, and how did the the outdoors help repair your soul? Yeah. Your, your 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 to bring you bring bring you whole again. It's, uh, and again, I talk about it some in the book, but I want to touch on this more intimately. Apparently that's my favorite word tonight, but, um, (laughs) it's true because it's an intimate experience. And for me, it was, I didn't realize how rehabilitative it would be because I'd been on a few hunts. I knew I liked it. I enjoyed it. I had harvested a buck. I had a freeze or a chest full of deer meat to bring with me on this journey. So I wasn't coming in empty handed, but the real work of learning and being out in the Northern woods for me in the steep country with the dangerous animals, the no cell phone service. Cause you know, like when I sat in a tree stand in Tennessee, I could scroll Instagram or whatever. And it's very hard to disconnect, but from where I chose to be, when I walked out my front door and I got out of, you know, 20 yards of my home where I had a Wi-Fi router, there was nothing. And it was that silence, that forced silence for me. Every time I went to do a trap line, elk hunting, antelope hunting, it was just me and occasionally a friend who would come with me. And that was it. And those fostered these relationships and like these, you know, what I consider to be like rewiring of my brain back to the ground. Cause when I'd sit there and I couldn't pull out my phone to look and see what Steve Ranella was doing somewhere else on earth, you know, it was me like focusing on grass or me focusing on how hungry I was or how bored I was or why it wasn't going the way I'm thinking. And then eventually into that mindset of why am I wasting my brain cycles? And I could be sitting here studying the minutia around me to become a better hunter And that was what was rehabilitating to me. It's just a full disconnect, you know, unplugging from the system, if you will. And that was the real healing moment for me. And that's what I encourage people. I talk to a lot of friends or veterans and stuff and, you know, just unplug. Like you don't need all the other stuff. Like I work in tech, I work in AI, you know, I've helped architects some of the things like infinite scrolling and all these other terrible things that are plaguing our nation and there's some guilt there too but like you have to make a conscious effort to remove that from your life and it's almost impossible to do that fully heck we're talking on a live stream on youtube um and if i had an instagram we would have been doing it on instagram so you can't fully unplug but when you do go out 
you can make a conscious effort to take, you know, whether it's an hour, two hours, two days, three days, a week, a year, and just be fully away. And it's amazing how quickly you can reintegrate into like, you know, people call it like your monkey mind, right? Like what it used to be like. And it's, there's something enchanting about it and something that's really rehabilitating about it. That's exactly right. That's what I like about it. Like hunting in the bluff country here, I, I, there, I can go in one little cove and not have a single ounce of service. So I was like, sweet, I'll shut off my, uh, my mobile data and I'm just out there in the now. I have my Onyx map up there looking like, okay, where's this? It's like, cause like I was, uh, literally went out on, was it Tuesday or was it Monday? Oh, it was Monday. Went out to a piece of property. First time something, stepping on this public land. Pulled in, parked my truck, walked in, deer sign, really, really consistent. Walked a little bit more deer sign. Okay, well, and I pull up on X, like, oh, there's a transition point for bedding. Here's a transition point. I, this is where I want to be. And then here's, here's where the field where they're going to go eat. Because, like, well, oh, they just got done pulling all the corn out. So, guess what? That's going to be a thing. thing. I was only out there for an hour. I bleated twice without a, without a call. Mm. And here walks in the six point. Oh, wow. And it's like he, and it's like the the side he pulls comes in on. It's like there's not a lot of uh, brush, which is like, oh, this is awesome. But it's all the small, fine twigs that I can't see. And mm-hmm. I I had a couple spots picked out as it grew darker after after last light or after uh, dusk. And it just, he just wouldn't get there. And I was like, well, I, I snort wheezed at him to see if I, he would turn around, come down. He just he just nope, I'm not even interested. But I that was a good uh, play in. Wind control, scent control, and thermals because he was probably a good 30 feet higher than I was, and I'm down below. So it's like it would have been a 30 yard upshot. But I've done a lot of practicing throughout the season to be able to prepare for a shot like that. So I'd have been right up my alley. But it was great to to be able to have that disconnect and like not being able to receive any text messages or anything like that. It was just great, just being in the now, and it's just like I, I just love it. Now today, I came across a study that a guy out in Arizona was just mid-70s, maybe 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s. He was talking about he was always in chronic pain. Now, when mm-hmm. you go out there and you go out hunting and stuff like that, and you're closer to the earth, like how how does your body begin its process of relaxing, when, right, beginning the process of relaxing when you are on a pack, backpack trip in 10, 15 miles? Yeah, I mean that- – <laughs> That's a hard question because it sucks. You know, like it's it's a mental relaxation for me, like, you know, versus a physical relaxation. Like I'm not feeling like I'm melting into the earth and my body's like I'm wrecked when I come back from doing like 60 miles in the backcountry, right? It's 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 rough stuff. And that's why we talked about training and doing that kind of stuff. But you know, I've always found, and I think that's why I've always been attracted to tough things. You know, I did tough things in suburbia to, you know, seeking out what the real toughness was of like getting out in the woods, you know, getting caught in snowstorms, all that doing jujitsu ultra marathons trained me up for that, but it's getting out there. It's like when you can break your body down so much that your mind just finally just lets go and be like, I'm just surviving. And you kind of get into that like reptilian brain, like that's where you can rewire yourself and talk like, I can do this. I'll survive this. And like when you actually have to have those legitimate conversations with yourself of saying like, you know, this is hard. This sucks. I'm doing this for a good reason. I'm doing hard things to learn about myself. Then you really start to. 
and you've got to you get to see where your own limits are um and that's where it goes for me is that like i'm just that type i have to go to the wall and then peek over otherwise i'm not growing understand i can understand the sentiment now what i was getting with that is that uh, this gentleman figured out that he, he like he gr- he basically what he did is he grounded himself so what he yep. did is he went and grabbed some of that metal uh, t- duct tape taped it all up along his bed and they took and he took a wire and, st- and tied it to a rod and stuck it in the ground and he was able to level himself off and he was able to actually reduce the the chronic fatigue and the arthritis in his body because he was saying in the in his conversation or his interview was that he always had to go to sleep with the with an Advil in his system to be able to mm-hmm. actually get comfortable enough to do that. Well, now it's like he he piqued the interest from somebody out in San Diego, and like okay, well I'll do it. And it's like I won't charge you for it. And it's like and it's just like wanted to show that you couldn't do that. And then all of a sudden they start. They did a test of like fifty or sixty people, and they started recognizing like there is something to this about being grounded to the earth. And I was like, that yeah. is pretty profound to, to be able to do that. And I think that's why, like, I was talking to Johnny Mulligan, and it's like why he feels so at peace being out there because his his body is now connected to the earth, the the, the magnetic frequency. And now they're starting to show, based off of the study, that there's a lot of pluses and minuses to that. And so now we're probably going to start seeing people, hopefully we'll start doing that type of uh, holistic approach because now you can easily figure out a, a means to, to connect yourself to the earth through your sheets and your bed and just have it grounded. So this way then you're always have that, uh, that, that I guess you'd be basically essentially grounding out the, the EMFs that your body produces. Yeah. I mean, I, I do believe in that. Like there's also the movement of like just taking your shoes off and putting your feet in the grass, right? It's the same general concepts like grounding yourself and i think we as sportsmen sportswomen are lucky like if you're out trapping like it can be three in the morning you're in a river you have the rushing river around you your boots are on the ground you're freezing you're digging through dirt to try to set a trap you know you're moving sticks or you're out in the woods you're moving stuff around and like you're touching stuff and you're being a part of it and that's not something people get and you get these smells like this the native smells and all that stuff that's filling your lungs. And I don't see that being at all a negative, like that can only be good for you. Um, so I, I mean, aside from the pain of doing these long backcountry hunts, like, yeah, I think there is a restorative component to being just outside period, um, which is pretty awesome. Oh yeah. So getting to the, towards the end here, the book. Yep. So Dylan, did you, is this self-published or do you have to find a publisher to, to get this book off the ground? Publisher. So it was a, a journey. So actually, uh, Tucker Max, the guy who wrote the, I hope they serve beer in hell, you know, multi New York times bestseller. Yeah. I'm familiar uh, with the book. Yeah. Yeah. So I went down to Texas and met with him and he ripped everything to shreds out of the gate. And then, you know, we built it back up from scratch, but, uh, went with him and his publishing company, Lion Crest Publishing and, um, you know, knocked it out in about eight months, total soup to nuts, you know, from all the different you know, book design, book layout, editing, copy edits, the whole lot. So it was a, it was a quick turnaround, but it was a fun experience working with those guys down in Texas. So w- now with this book, are you going to be going on tour or anything like that? How do you, how are you beginning the, the process of promoting your book to get people like the, to learn about your journey and such? You know, it's a little holistic, like there's some traditional means like you can get it at Barnes and Noble, things like that. So, you know, 
I'm not, I don't have a following. I'm not an influencer. So that's kind of like, if you really want to sell a book, we'll first become an influencer. So I'm not doing it that way, obviously. Um, but it's been pushing and resonating with a lot of the trapping community. So like the Idaho Trappers Association, Montana Trapping Association, those guys have gone out of their way to really help promote the book and kind of get some of the initial sales off the ground. Um, you know, I've been talking with sportsmen, um, international, a bunch of conservation, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers. You know, they are potentially going to push it a little bit for me if you know, once they're done reading the book uh, and assuming they enjoy it. But I think it's a great opportunity from a book perspective to demystify what it means to get into hunting as an adult, because it's the story of me learning the hard way. And I don't spare any detail about the gore and the frustrations and, you know, the reality of learning these things as an adult. And I think there's a lot of mental barriers for people who are thinking about it, but don't want to cross that chasm because maybe they don't have mentors. Like, you know, I didn't have a mentor, but I'm hopeful that this will bring more people who have been hunt curious or are getting hunt curious into the space and to realize like it's doable. You know, you can figure it out and, you know, there's better ways now you can find mentors and there's some great resources out there for that. But, um, you know, that's the goal. So I'm not going on tour. You might see me at a few different conferences. I'll be at, like the Western Hunt Expo in Utah um, and a few other places next year. But I'm just going to kind of let it see how it goes. You know, I didn't have any expectations with the book. Yeah, you know, I didn't do this to become a New York Times bestseller. I just wanted to get my story out there because the few people I talked to, they're like, shit, like, I went through the same thing or, you know, I've been thinking about doing that too. And this is such useful information for me. So it was more of a, you know, I don't think I'm an anomaly. I think there's more people out there like me and I'd rather expose them to say, Hey, keep going. You can do it and figure it out. And it's a great life on the other side when you do. Oh, definitely. That's a great uh, philosophy to have. So you see, you said you were also writing as well. Do you see, are you doing a part two to this? Or are you actually coming up with another nonfiction? actually fiction uh, okay. <laughs> of all things. So I, I, I'm a big fan of like Westerns. So I actually have written and already edited and I'm shopping around for a literary agent for a historical Western based in Atlanta, Idaho. Cause there's so much cool history in this little town. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a huge Chinese diaspora during the gold mining era and they used to scrape the bones of Chinese. So the title of the book is the bone scraper. And it's kind of like Quentin Tarantino meets Louis L'Amour. Oh, Western. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, so it's a series. So we're starting off in Atlanta, Idaho. That's the first book and it's finished and edited. And now I'm working down to the Awahis in Southern Idaho um, and some of the mine wars that went on there in the 1860s. And then we'll work up to Henry's Lake and some of the Basque and Peruvian influences in Idaho. So I've been doing lots of research. I sat with the historical society before I wrote it. Um, yeah. And just hammering out writing. I just enjoy writing and you know, the fiction's a new thing for me. I've never been a big fiction guy, but, you know, the bug bit me and I just decided to start writing. And an author that I, uh, that I admire, I've actually gone to a couple of his lectures called, his name's Graham Hancock. And he does mm -hmm. a lot of things about Younger Dryas, uh, asteroids, big history buff, always trying to push the, nar the narrative, of, like trying to debunk the narratives being passed down from like uh, Oxford and, uh, what is it with some, some of the other bigger, uh, like 
not MIT, but Harvard and Princeton and stuff like that, trying to really bring down their narrative that they're trying to control what they what they what they want to produce. But he did a series about uh, during during the time of Montezuma, and he, it was it was I haven't read the book, but it's, it's basically what they did is he turned it into a love story. So story yeah. itself is a love story, but the everything around them is factual. Mm-hmm. And it actually was going on, and I thought, like, that is a really good way of writing a good book because not only you're being entertained by the love story, but you're also getting uh, adventure with it too. Because now these people are living what we we only know about in history books. It kind of gives a different perspective to it. And I like that approach because because when you mentioned Twin, Quentin Tarantino, I literally just watched uh, From Dust Till Dawn yesterday. It's like, oh, that could be a very entertaining book. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's extremely violent, but it's historically accurate. And there is, you know, a through character of like good morals and everything. So it was a lot of fun to write. That is fantastic. So, and uh, so when do you think that's going to, is it going to be on the shelves coming out after Christmas? It'll be, it'll be, yeah, that, that book will be out not until probably 2024, to be oh, honest. Really? Wow. Yeah. It, the lead times for these books are insane. Like my eight month journey to get this book out the door. And I already had some writing done when I went there. Yeah. That's Herculean efforts of speed um, and pushing. So it was, you know, writing a lot very quickly. And I had a great publishing team. Um, so that's the exception. It's usually a one to two year time frame for getting something out the door. No kidding. See, I've never really actually looked into doing uh, writing a book. I do a better job with with talking. So it's like it's, it's always good to hear like how somebody goes through the whole process. I think one of my next guests is going to be Charles Beatty, the 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 Prince of uh, Poaching. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you're familiar. Are you familiar with Charles Beatty? I've heard of him. Yes. Yeah, I've listened to all of his podcasts so far. He he approached me here a couple of years ago, but I've just gotten. I hate to say it, but I, he kind of got lost in the mix because. I'm very, I, my, I follow my dopamine and it's like, and if it doesn't, it's like, I have to really um, dive into it immediately. Otherwise my ADHD kicks in and then I'll like, oh, well I will bring him on. I'll bring him on. I'll bring him. And it's like, all of a sudden like, dude, I was supposed to have you like on a couple of years ago. It's just amazing <laughs> how things go through. And it's like, I've, I've danced around the idea about doing more than one episode a week, which I was at a period of time, but you know, it gets too much. And it's like, I'm, I, I, I don't allow an episode to really resonate and, and have a chance to to explore and then and also but also have a chance to promote it so with some of my with some of my with my newest sponsor with uh, uh panther vision it's going to be kind of one of those things where i'm actually going to be able to have some marketing dollars to be able to put mm-hmm. in some episodes and just kind of do like a dollar a day type uh push for it because uh, it, it doesn't. I don't need a whole. If it if it, if it takes off organically and then like people share it, then it could then it could have an uh, an opportunity to be able to do more. But I don't need to dump like five, ten, fifteen dollars a day in for marketing for one episode. Yeah. It's like I'm only look, if I can get a couple thousand people to to work, to look at it, I'll be happy with it. But because of way Meta's destroyed a lot of the algorithms, it's very difficult to get uh, your podcast out there and get the reach you what I, what it once had. So yeah. I have to I have to actually spend some advertising dollars, but being doing these lives and such have been really been fruitful even doing the why i mentioned instagram is because it allows the people to actually look at it and it's like it's tied to it with my for when i use zoom 
into yellow into uh, YouTube, it doesn't always translate to notifications and such for those who are subscribing to the podcast because I also want the audio. So why I record mm-hmm. it's like, well, I'm live. Why are you recording? Well, now it's like I'm going to get a audio copy so this way that people don't want to watch it, they can at least listen to it. And so now I'm hoping that Murphy doesn't show up here after I hit end. So we'll see what all happens, man. But what are some of the best ways to reach out to you, Zach, for, for, for reaching out to becoming a mentor, like asking questions about trapping or, or actually like, let's say another guy has gone through a divorce or something traumatic happened. What are the best ways for a guy or somebody like that to get a hold of you? So this way then you can be a good uh, tour guide. Yeah, no, I mean, well, first off, I'm an open book. So anybody who wants to reach out, please do. Um, Really, the best way is LinkedIn, which is how Jeff and I got connected. That's really my only social media. I pretty pretty much put an annex on everything else, you know, several years ago. Um, So you can find me there, Zachary Hansen. I'm the guy with a mustache and a cowboy hat, and you'll see a picture of my book. So I'll be pretty easy to find there. But message me. I'm happy to talk to anybody. I've got some great connections with you know, Stephen Makovich on LinkedIn, who's putting together some coaching uh, programs for people. So shout out to him, Eric Morris. There's a bunch of people who are really pushing, you know, opening their arms to people who want to learn. Um, I'm almost also there too. So if you have any questions or thoughts, do that. But yeah, I hope people enjoy the book and you know can laugh at all of my follies as I learned and fumbled my way into the hunting space and. Uh, yeah, and then Jeff, I hope I can get out to Wisconsin at some point to go maybe play in some of those bluffs. Oh man, you you'd absolutely love it, especially like I was didn't realize the I have I have some like twenty three hundred acres like fifteen minutes away. Never stepped in the property, and it's like I already had deer. I had a buck of six, uh, a little basket six within the yep. first. 70 minutes of me being in there so before right before it got dusk but i think the a, a quick way for us is to be just like i'm looking at doing a tack event or doing something or mountain archery challenge like that's a good place for us to meet because it's like not only yep. can you promote your book but you can also go out there and shoot the course and have a blast because i have friends of mine in south dakota and it's like they're like hey it's like I, I i went i went east can you come west well it's like to go west it's like it's like i have to go like 15 hours where you guys yep. are going to come four or five so it's it's going to be an going to be a come upcoming funny fun year of all i've been listening to hjusa's podcast they're going to be doing four events this year because it's like it's it's a lot of undertaking and it's a they've kind of he's saturated one area so now he's actually picking other locations that are further away from the his from hha home base there in in uh wisconsin Rapids. so the cool thing is is like you if you ever come to my area i literally have matthews 15 minutes away we have tactic cam we have uh, nose jammer we have predator camo like this this is all within like 30 minutes of my house that's awesome well i look forward to that so we'll uh when we get up for part two, we can make some plans. Definitely. I'm looking forward to reading about your journey and stuff like, cause I've always, I've always been a, a Jack London fan, but it's, it's nice to bring his uh, experiences into the forefront. But I think, I don't know if he actually did a lot of his stuff. I think maybe his is more non more fiction, but it's tough to say, but it always gives the, it always uh, reignites the vigor of my youth. Like reading this book and being transported into the Yukon doing the Iditarod. Mm-hmm. 100%. Well, this won't be the Iditarod. It'll be more of me getting my hands stuck in wolf traps and stuff, but you'll, you'll be able to live vicariously. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Zach, for coming on the Bucks America podcast. It was a great time to speaking with you. I really greatly appreciate you taking time out of your busy life to hang out with me for a couple hours. I mean, I loved it, man. Well, I appreciate it and best of luck with everything. And 
If anybody wants a book, they can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you can buy your books. Uh, Turning Feral, Modern Journey into Hunting, Trapping, and Living More Intentionally in the Wilderness. And, and thanks, Jeff. You're very welcome. And on top of that, too, those who are listening, I did put the link to the Amazon uh, in the chat. This is where you can find it. And when I do the show notes for this episode, the link will be in there as well. And I might even put it in my link tree just because you are my first published author on my podcast. It's like, I got to give a guy a shout out because it's like, I'll do as much advertising as I possibly can, considering you're, you're trying to be as low tech and high tech world as you possibly can. Yep. All right, Jeff. I appreciate it. Have a great evening. You as well.